take your mind back a few years, just for a moment. And maybe for some of us, it'll be a few years longer than for others. Take your mind back to being at school in the playground where sports teams were being selected. As a child and in my teenage years, I suffered the indignity of being one of the least able members of my year group when it came to PE. I could just about cope with whatever drills or practices we were forced to endure, but my heart sank when it came time to play a game. This is how it usually worked. There were two captains who would be selected from the group. And almost always the captains were the fittest, the most athletic and the most popular students. And their job was to select from the rest of us, one by one, building up teams. In practice, what this meant was that those of us who were more athletically challenged stood by as passive spectators as our classmates were preferred over us. More than once, there was an odd number of players and I was the last one left to be picked. And the team captains offered me to one another. They thought I was more of a hindrance than a help. Well, perhaps that is why I was drawn to the person of Jesus. You know, Jesus is in the business of picking teams. In fact, he's quite keen to have as big a team as possible. But what's so unusual about Jesus is that he doesn't pack his ranks with the popular and the muscular, the brightest and the best. No, when Jesus picks teams, his approach couldn't be more different. His values couldn't be more different to the values of the world. At the beginning of his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus described the kind of person who has a place on his team. Not the rich, but the poor in spirit. Not the proud and the gloating and the comfortable, but the mourning. Not the self-sufficient, self-starter, but the meek. Not those who lord their power over others and exploit them, but those who hunger for thirst and righteousness. It is, in the eyes of the world, weakness. It's topsy-turvy. It's upside down. This Jesus, the eternal Son of God, humbled himself to become a man to step into the world to call weak and needy people, to call a team that didn't look like the teams of the world. He calls us not that people might boast in us, but that people might boast in him. So this lunchtime, as we pick up the second half of this famous section of Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, I've got two things that I want us to see and to take away from it. The first is the weakness of the messengers, and the second is the power of the message. So first, the weakness of the messengers. It doesn't start in a particularly flattering way. I'm sure you noticed as Anna read it to us. At verse 26, brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. We've got to remember here that Paul was writing to a small but growing church in the ancient city of Corinth. Great location and great spiritual heritage. Paul himself had been their church planter and had stayed a year and a half with them, which was longer than he'd normally spend as he traveled from city to city. So the celebrity evangelist Paul had got them going in the faith, and some people were hero-worshipping him. Others looked to the celebrity pastors, to Apollos or Peter. You can read about that in verses 12 to 17. So here was a church that seemed materially well-to-do and spiritually secure with its big-name influences. 
Maybe it's understandable what happened to them as a congregation. Factions emerged. Some followed different leaders. Others wanted different spiritual gifts and lauded it over others when they had them and others didn't. Still others that the wealthy would throw big feasts which excluded the poorer members from fellowship and from communion. There was a culture of competitiveness, of one-upmanship of the haves and the have-nots in the life of the church. So Paul speaks into this toxic church culture by knocking everybody down to size. He says not many were wise, not many were influential, not many of noble birth. In other words, you're not all that special. But he doesn't say it to insult them. This isn't just the biggest bully in the playground trying to exert his dominance. Far from it. This is one of the weakest and least impressive people in the room, trying to teach others what true discipleship is all about. He's trying to show them the way of Jesus, the way of the cross. There are two things to note here. The first is that we weren't anything special when God chose to save us. The gospel works like this. Uh, He loved us. He called us as his own. He saved us from our sins. He adopted us as his children. There's no part of that order of salvation where we are the chief actors. We don't do God a favor by coming into his kingdom as if he needs us on his team. In fact, quite the opposite in Romans chapter 5, Paul makes exactly that point. He says, You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Or in the terms of 1 Corinthians, not many of you were wise by human standards, not many were influential, not many of noble birth. We could add, not many of you were worthy. It was in our weakness and folly that God stepped in to rescue us. But there's a second equally important message here for us, and it's this. In the eyes of the world, there is still nothing special about us. In fact, it's quite the reverse. As we follow Christ, we seem weak and foolish to those around us. And I think we can forget that sometimes when we're in the surroundings of a church environment that looks relatively impressive. Maybe when we think of church buildings, we picture historic stone structures that have architectural significance, like this place I'm standing here in All Souls. We've got an iconic location at the heart of the West End, caps off that great sweep of Regent Street. For monopoly-bored London, we're one of the greens. If you land here, you want to build a house. It's grade one listed. It's neighbours of the Langham Hilton Hotel, BBC's broadcasting house. Uh, And when we've tidied it up properly, it looks and feels quite impressive in here. I have to say it feels a lot less impressive when there's nobody else in the room. Many of my great memories here are times where the church is full and ringing with a sound of singing. It does take something to believe that God's word is still at work when the place is quiet and the atmosphere is gone, as it has under this pandemic. But if church buildings and our church meetings can sometimes fool us into thinking this Christian faith seems impressive, we need only step out of church and into the world to get a more realistic picture. And many of you will do that day by day as you go to work. 
There you will find out firsthand why the Bible writers described us as strangers and exiles in the world. Outside our enclaves, things can feel very different. I first experienced that when I joined secondary school at the age of 11. Uh, We had a little Christian society there, and a boy in my tutor group would ask me each week if I wanted to go along. Now, to my mind, there were two downsides and one upside. Uh, The first downside was that the group met in the break time straight after I'd had swimming. And from what I've said about my sporting ability, you can imagine how I felt at the end of a swimming lesson. The last thing I wanted to do was to rush off to a Christian meeting. And the second downside was that when I got there, it felt kind of feeble. There were maybe four or five of us at most, and there were always more people mingling outside the room waiting for their next lesson than there were inside the room, hearing a quick thought from the Bible. There was one upside, though, and that was that we had donuts. And that alone, along with my friend's persistence in inviting me, made me regularly attend there. Well, the years went by and our numbers stayed resolutely small. At times, it felt embarrassing to go and to be a part of it. But it was formative for me. And I learned a couple of things from that experience, which I could have got here from these verses in 1 Corinthians. Firstly, I learned to make myself known as a Christian. It seems like a small step, but for many in the workplace, it's a step they haven't taken. I've got a friend, he always asks the Christians he knows, are you public about your faith? Do people know that you're a Christian, if you are one? A few years ago, when I left my old workplace to come and work here at the church, I got several reactions from my colleagues. Some were extremely supportive. Some wanted to tell me about the bad experiences they'd had with church in the past. But the most memorable response I got was from a colleague who said, The church? That's the last thing I'd expect you to do. I realized he had no idea I was a Christian. And by his response, I fear that I'd done something to make him think that I was very much not a Christian. So I learned to make myself known as a Christian. But secondly, I learned what it looked like to be a Christian. It looked like being a small group of people scattered among many others who follow a different king. It means having different priorities, different attitudes, different behavior. On a good day, that could come across as virtuous to others. They might say things like, I wish I had your faith. But on a bad day, or even maybe an average day, it comes across as strange and awkward and undesirable. It arouses suspicion or derision or even outright hostility. Can I say to you, if that is where you find yourself, please take comfort from these words of the Apostle Paul. If you sound foolish, if you look weak in the eyes of those around you, it doesn't mean that something's wrong. Maybe it means that God is using you for his kingdom purposes. Verse 27. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of the world and the things that are despised, the things that are not, to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. Which takes us neatly to our second and our final point today. We've said something of the weakness of the messengers, but in our weakness, we see, secondly, the power of the message. The encouragement, I hope, is clear to see. Yes, we will look foolish and and weak, but that is how God is working through us. 
If it seems like going the Christian way is weak, that's exactly how God intended it to be. In his upside-down wisdom, he has chosen this way as the better way. You think you're not a great evangelist? You don't always have the right words at the right time? Well, listen to the Apostle Paul, himself no slouch when it comes to Christian thinking. He says, verse 1 of chapter 2, And so it was with me, brothers and sisters. When I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. He wasn't a great performer when it came to public speaking and quick answers to tough questions. He didn't seem wise to many of those who heard him speak. By all accounts, he was actively unimpressive. But again and again, he wants us to know that what he showed in weakness as a messenger was more than made up for by the power of his message. And what was that message? Well, as we heard last week from chapter 1 and verse 18, it is the message of the cross. Or from here in chapter 2 and verse 2, For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Christ and him crucified. That is the power of God for those who believe. It warns us against changing the message because to do so would rob it of its power and to deny God his glory. And instead, it encourages us to persevere with it in faith, knowing that this is how God has chosen to make himself known in the world. It's by the testimony of foolish and weak people to a message that is foolish and weak in human terms. But spiritually speaking, through it, God turns upside down the wisdom of the world and demonstrates through it his wisdom and power. Paul wants to leave us confident in the faith. Here what he writes as he closes this section from verse 3. I came to you in weakness, with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but God's power. So as you live out a Christian life in view of your colleagues and others around you, it'll look weak and you will look weak. As you speak of the gospel of Jesus to your contemporaries, it will sound foolish and you will sound foolish. And God wouldn't have it any other way. Your mission might not be the most impressive and you might not win awards for your humble service of the people on your team and you might not get warm appreciation every time you have a a gospel conversation. But through the weakness of what you do and of what you share, God is shaming the strong. The people we share the gospel with can see it. They know that we're not wise by human standards. They know that we're not influential. It seems utterly implausible. Yet God gets great glory when fairly feeble people like you and like me are willing to be known as his and willing to be used by him. So there we have the weakness of the messengers and the power of the message. And the conclusion to all of this is that we have no grounds for boasting before God or anyone else, but we do have something to boast in. Weak though it seems, foolish though it appears to the eyes of those who don't know it, we can boast in the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. As a hymn writer puts it, I will not boast in anything, no gifts, no power, no wisdom, but I will boast in Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. Why should I gain from his reward 
I cannot give an answer, but this I know with all my heart. His wounds have paid my ransom. So let me now pray for us that though weak and foolish we may be, the Holy Spirit may be at work in us and through us to make God's wisdom and power known to a needy world. Let me pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this message of the cross. And we acknowledge before you, it feels at times foolish and weak, even to us. And we know it does to those around us. So give us confidence to keep true to it, to let the message of the cross be our true north. And Father, we pray through our words and through our deeds, that the Spirit will be at work through us and in us, that your power would be known in this great gospel of grace and that you would be glorified. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.